0: Father, we do bow before you and we're thankful for laughter, we're thankful for joy that's ours in Christ, and we're thankful for your spirit like we learned about last week. What a a precious gift uh, you've given us in your spirit to grow us, transform us, encourage us, pray for us, and we look to you this morning and we, we long that. That today would be a day that we would experience all that you intend through the gathering of your body. Uh, that we would be edified and built up and encouraged by the by the word, of course, and and by singing, and but also by each other, by the fellowship that we share um, before and after services, at lunch, um, during the day, this evening when we gather back together, and even when we linger tonight after the services. We pray that all of this would be for your glory, and that um, you would. Do what we're going to talk about today. You would grow us into the image of your son. Help me, Lord, uh, in my weakness to proclaim your truth with passion and clarity. And I pray that your spirit would be delighted to work uh, just through a weak vessel uh, to accomplish his, his will. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well. If you are new this week, we have been in a series entitled Growing Up, as you can see on the screen, and we're looking into this theme of how God grows us, or how He matures us into the image of Christ, to be more like His Son, Jesus. In previous weeks, we've talked about how crucial this topic is for for all of us here, It's crucial for every believer because it's God's great goal for every single one of us in here. He wants us all to grow up, to reach this state of maturity, and then to continue to progress in Christian maturity. It's His goal for every single one of us, and He is using everything in your life, the truth, the church, circumstances, the world, all to come together to conform you to the image of His Son, to make you more like Him, if you belong to Him. And if you don't, you can today through faith. But it's, it's very important that we think biblically about this, not just because it's, it's his goal. I mean, that's huge. But because also there is a lot of confusion out there about how it happens, how growth happens, how we mature. You're told to read your Bible and pray, so you try that. Then you're told not to strive too hard because you're going to be relying on yourself and not on the Holy Spirit. You're told that you should cultivate spiritual disciplines, but not too much, or you'll be legalistic. And what happens if you don't feel like obeying Jesus? If you obey when you don't want to, does that mean you're inauthentic or hypocritical? And sometimes, many times, the confusion in the church leads people to look outside of the church, to rely on the world's wisdom for change. Most Christians today would encourage you to look to some form of integration of psychology to help you with your problems. Other radical Christians, like us, are going to caution you against that. So there's a lot of of things being said out there, right? There's definitely a lot of confusion swirling around. So we need to know what the Bible says about growing up. And in our first week together, we try to get our minds around this topic. Oh, it would help if I put my... USB in here, we try to get our minds around this topic of growing up. So we looked at this concept of maturity in the first week. We we try to understand it, kind of get our minds around it. And we saw that God's goal for us is that we mature, is that we we grow into a a steady pattern of thinking, desiring, and acting like Jesus in the day-to-day, right? So that was kind of our working definition. It's maturity is a pattern of thinking, a pattern of desiring, a pattern of acting like Jesus in our daily lives. It's not perfection. It's just this pattern of thinking, desiring, and acting like Christ. And that's our short definition of maturity. There's a lot of signs that we're mature, but we'll, we'll come back to that later in the series. All right, that was week one. And next, with that basic definition in mind, we turned our attention to looking at how this growth to maturity takes place. We called it The Means of Maturity. We started that last week, and we saw that God has provided absolutely everything we need to grow up to maturity. He's committed to it. He's given us what we need. And I I outlined four of them. I kind of put a lot of things the Bible says into four overarching categories. Do you remember them? What was the first one? All right, the spirit. We looked at that last week. The spirit. What else? We'll talk about this one this week. The truth, yes. What else? Now it's getting murky. The church, not murky. Okay, you guys had that one. And what else? The world. Now I think these will be very helpful categories for you to think about moving forward. I think it's comprehensive. It's not gonna, we're not going to say everything we could say about this. There's a lot that we're leaving out, kind of on the chopping block. But at least this is pretty comprehensive of how God is working to transform us into the image of his son. And last week, we took an in-depth look at the Spirit and how He grows us to maturity. And we saw that He is our only hope. Without this precious gift, we will not grow in any lasting way. But with Him, our growth is not only possible, but it's actually guaranteed. That's because God Himself has taken up residence within us. He's made us alive. He's broken our enslavement to deception and sin. And He's given us power to change over time. And we saw last week that that, the Spirit is our our most precious, precious gift. But today we're going to see that the Spirit doesn't work in a vacuum. He doesn't just kind of zap us without without involving anything or anyone else. He certainly changes us, but He uses something to do it. He uses the truth, the Word of God, the scriptures, and that's our second means of maturity, and we're going to look at that today. Now, as we approach this topic, I want to do three main things this morning, all right? I I am a little worried about this lesson, because I feel like it's going to be a bit much. So, let me caveat on the front end. Uh I'm, I'm less scripted today, and it's going to be a little bit like drinking from a fire hydrant, but I want to encourage you that, how many of you have ever painted a room? How many of you have painted a room a light color over a dark color? Okay. You know it takes multiple coats? You can think of today as like the first coat. Okay? We're going to go back over and over again, um, and application illustrations as we go on later in this series. Okay? So it's first coat, so if you start feeling a little anxious as we're working through some of this stuff, just remember, first coat. All right? First coat, we're going to come back to it. Okay, So I want to do three main things this morning. The first thing I want to do is I want to establish the connections between the Spirit and the truth in Scripture. Okay? There's a lot of confusion about what the Spirit does in our lives. And I want to show you that the Spirit, whatever else He might do, according to Scripture, the the primary thing the Spirit does in our lives is He leads us to the truth, He helps us understand it and obey it. Okay, So I want to show you that from Scripture, so you're not just taking my word for it. I want to establish that connection. And then once that's firm in our minds, I want to show you some very clear statements in Scripture that claim that the Bible is all we need to mature spiritually. Meaning it's sufficient. We don't need to supplement it with anything else for spiritual growth. Now, I didn't say medical growth. Okay, I'm talking about spiritual growth, to grow spiritually. We don't need to supplement it with anything else. The Bible is very clear about this, and I want to show you that. And then third, I want to give you a brief glimpse into into some of these ways that the Lord uses His Word... His written word, in particular, through the power of the Spirit to grow us. Okay? That's a lot to, have to cover in just a few minutes. So, again, his first coat, we'll, we'll, we'll paint over it again uh, in, in weeks to come. So, we're going to organize this under three main headings. The first heading will be connections between the Spirit and truth. Now, again, a little a little word here. I might tell you to turn to a place or two, but on the whole, just try to capture these references. I'll have a lot of them on screen. I think that'll help us keep moving through this material. It's pretty, pretty intuitive. All right, so let's look at some of these connections between the Spirit and truth. The Spirit is characterized by the truth in Scripture. And I wrote down one reference here, John 14, 17. And what I mean, what what he says there is is Jesus multiple times in the Gospel of John calls the Spirit, the Spirit of truth. The Spirit of truth. Now, it's sort of a pregnant phrase. It it could go a lot of different ways of of kind of what what this means. But at the very least, it means that the Spirit is, is characterized by the truth. You could even say that he produces the truth. We'll see in a minute. But he's characterized by the truth. He's bound up with the truth. He's all about it, in other words. He wants us to be clear in it. And he's deeply concerned that we come to know the truth. So he's he's described, you know, kind of at the outset, as the spirit of truth, its first connection. And he wants us to know it so much that he inscripturated truth. All right, he inscripturated truth. He had it written down. He moved the apostles to write down truth for us. Now, let me just take you through some things that the scriptures say on this to kind of build this out for you a little bit, to show you how tethered and how committed the Spirit is to getting the truth to us in written form. Again, I'm drawing heavily on the Gospel of John, as you can see here. But in John, if you write down all all these references, you can just think John 14 through 16, those chapters. John 14 through 16. Jesus said that the Spirit would come to empower his apostles to remember everything he said. Okay, that's John 14, 26. The Spirit would come to empower His disciples, the twelve, to remember everything that He said. He said back in verse 25, I'll just read it to you. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So you hear that. He'll bring to your remembrance all that I've taught you, all that he said, all the words of Christ. So one of the roles of the Spirit is to bring that to remembrance to the twelve, to the apostles. And not just to remember everything that Jesus said on earth, but actually to also reveal new truth to the apostles. All right, so that's kind of the second phase of this inscripturation, that the Spirit would not just cause them to remember the things Jesus taught them, but actually reveal new stuff. And you actually just heard that probably in the verse I just read. He says that the Spirit will come and He will teach you all things and what I taught you, to bring to your remembrance the things I taught you. Jesus says this again over in John 16, and He's even more explicit here. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. So when can they bear them? Well, When the Spirit of truth comes, verse 13, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. So, the Spirit would help them remember everything. He would, he would give them new truth, the fullness of it. And so he revealed this new truth, and he brought these things to remembrance for two reasons. So they would, number one, preach it. They would bear witness. That's what he says in John 15. They would bear witness to the truth. And not only just preach it, but also write it down. And you see Paul's own reflections on this over in Ephesians chapter 3. We won't won't go there. But he's reflecting on his role as an apostle, how how Christ had given him revelation, and that even the letter to the Ephesians, he was writing it down and giving it to them. So my point here is that it's the Spirit. he, He is the one who produced all of our written texts that we have today. The Spirit, then, is all about the truth of Scripture. So anybody that's, that you hear, any of your friends, any of, maybe even professors or other churches that are trying to drive a wedge between the written text of Scripture and the work of the Holy Spirit, you can know that that's, that's just not a thing. The Spirit Himself is the one inspiring these texts for us to follow. And not only did He produce the Bible for us, as significant as that is, but the Spirit is even the one who illumines the truth. We saw that last week. Central to this ministry is helping us to understand and apply the truth. Paul says this very clearly over in 1 Corinthians. And he kind of fuses both of these last two points I just covered. Paul again is talking about how In verse 12 of chapter 2 that we've received meaning the apostles, not the spirit of the world but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God and then what do they do with that? In verse 13, we impart this this revelation they've received we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom but taught by the spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So Paul knew that in his teaching, as he came proclaiming Christ to these Corinthians, as he came laboring and preaching and teaching in the church, that as he taught the words of Scripture, the revelation that had been given to him, that the divine power through the Holy Spirit was behind him, and he was the ultimate teacher. He is the ultimate teacher of, of Paul's own words. He was the one illuminating the truth. So he gave us the Bible, and he is illuminating the Bible to his people. And not only that, he is also empowering the truth. The spirit intends that the, to work as the truth is taught. He intends to work as the truth is applied to the lives of others. He's doing the teaching and the application. And the text I wrote down here is is Ephesians 6:17, which describes the sword of the Spirit, His weapon, as the Word of God. The Spirit's very weapon to accomplish this work is the sword of truth. And that just means He's the divine power that's that's empowering the truth. There's an inseparable link, then, between what the Spirit is doing in the church and us coming to understand and believe the truth. And I ran through all that because I want you to see How intertwined the Spirit is with the truth, and particularly the written words of God. Like I said, many will try to drive a wedge between the Spirit and the truth. They'll claim that being led by the Spirit, you'll hear that, it's Paul's term, being led by the Spirit, or walking by the Spirit, or being filled with the Spirit, is something outside of Scripture. But it should be very clear, and if we examine those contexts that those terms come up, we would see this. It should be very clear that the premier way the Spirit works is by teaching us to understand, to believe, and to live by the written word He's provided for us. When He leads us, He is leading us back to the written word of God and by the written word of God. When we walk by Him, we learn to follow Him as He's revealed Himself in Scripture. When we're filled with Him, it means we come to resemble His character, His fruit that He's revealed to us in Scripture, as well as the means to get there. So, the Spirit clearly uses the truth to mature us. Kind of when I'm driving home. He uses it to grow us. It's His sword. And in the hands of the third person of the Trinity, it is His only weapon. It's sufficient for the battle. And that leads us to our second heading, where we'll talk about statements about the sufficiency of the truth. We're going to see some very clear statements that tell us how sufficient the truth is for spiritual growth. All right, let's look at a few of these together, and I have these actually on the screen. And I'm only picking just a smattering of these, okay? There's, they're all over, Old and New Testament. The first one comes from John 8, and we can say it like this. The truth liberates us from enslavement to sin. Jesus says this over in John chapter 8. The truth liberates us from enslavement to sin. This is one of my favorite passages that sets up kind of sufficiency, this, the power of the, of the truth. And it connects us to Jesus' words. So let me, let me flick this up on screen. John 8. In this passage, he gives us this staggering promise. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. He goes on to say, in this passage, in the next few verses, that everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Clearly, the context is freedom from sin, bondage, enslavement. So what he means then is of starting out, like we saw last week, we're not free. We're dead, we're deceived, and in, this, in Jesus' words here, we're enslaved to the power of sin. We need to be liberated from its enslaving power. And like we saw last week, we saw that the Spirit is given to us to bring us from death to life, to end that deception And here we see that He very clearly does this. He sets us free through the means of Christ's words. Our freedom comes as we confess our sin against Him and our need for Him. It comes as we abandon our own wisdom and depend on His words alone. As we depend on His promises, on His work And Jesus gives us this in the shorthand. He says it comes through abiding in his words. That just means depending on Jesus' words in faith. Depending on his words above what we think or we feel. That's because Jesus' words are real. They're true. They're eternal. They reveal things as they really are. They're more true than what you experience. They're more true than what you feel. And they're more true than what you think. And the end result of sticking with these words of Christ, of this sort of abandonment to his words, is freedom, he says. It's liberation, it's free from the enslavement to sin. So what Christ is promising here is transformation. He is promising transformation from a life of sin to a life of righteousness through the truth. Through his words. So, according to Jesus, the path to change, the path to true and lasting liberation from sin, is bound up in whether or not we know and believe what is true. That's a pretty significant statement about the sufficiency of the truth to transform us. So let's look at two more texts really quick. Over in 2 Timothy, it's a very familiar verse, we learn from Paul that the truth equips us for every good work. Not for some good works. For every good work. It's sufficient. It's It's profitable. It's able to do this. It's able to accomplish what we need. The truth equips us for every good work. Pop that back up here. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All Scripture, in this case even referring to the the Old Testament, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Okay? The Bible is holding it right out there. saying saying the Scriptures, inspired by God, brought to us by Him, and He's given it to us as a profitable guide for teaching, for reproof, for correction. Why? So we may be equipped, we may be adequate, and then equipped for every single good work that God's going to call us to. That's transformation, and it's not just Paul. Okay, Peter agrees that this divinely energized truth is all we need, and so do the other biblical authors. He says there that in first, in uh, excuse me, Second Peter one that the truth is everything we need for life and godliness. And I think there, what he means is spiritual life and godly living. The truth is everything we need, is everything necessary for life and godliness. Let's look at 2 Peter 1. It says, His divine power has granted to us all things, all things that pertain to life, spiritual life, eternal life, and godliness in the here and now. How has He done it? Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He's granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them, hear that language, through these promises you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So this escape from corruption... This becoming a partaker of the divine nature, which is a staggering phrase, is all coming through the precious and very great promises. And the knowledge of God. Coming to understand and believe the truth. And that's coming from God. His the, the divine power who's granted us all things that we need. That are related to our, our spiritual life and our transformation in godliness. Now I wanted to take you through all that because it is... So tempting, so tempting for us to want to turn to worldly wisdom for help in solving our problems. It's coming to us, it's coming at us at every turn. Every single one of you are influenced by worldly solutions to your problems. And so am I. It's coming at us on social media. It's coming at us in the news. It's coming at us in commercials. It's coming at us even in churches. We're tempted to think, is the Bible really enough to liberate me from the sin patterns I face? From my debilitating anxiety. From my addiction to pornography. From my enslavement to what others think about me from my persistent depression that won't seem to lift, from my eating disorder, is the Bible sufficient? Is it really sufficient for my spiritual problems? Or do I need outside help? Whatever we may be tempted to think in our own wisdom, the Bible clearly claims that for spiritual issues it is completely sufficient. So the burden of proof is on those that are saying it's not or that it denies it in some way, that we need to add to it in some way. They're not going to deny that it's useful, but we need to add to it. We need something else in addition to help us with our spiritual problems. So then you might be thinking, how does the Lord actually use his truth then to liberate us? Well, let me give you a few ways that it does this. And this is not comprehensive at all, okay? This is just a crash course. It's just the overview, remember. Don't panic if it doesn't stick. It's just first coat, because we're going to come back to this again and again. We'll come back uh, several times in this series with lots of examples and applications. So let's look at the ways the Lord uses truth to grow us. We'll start with a basic one we've all experienced, he convicts us of sin. When we come, when we're reading his truth, hearing it taught, this is the reproof and the correction that we looked at in that 2 Timothy verse. The Lord uses his word at the most basic level to bring home conviction of sin. Or as Paul says it in 2 Timothy 3.16, to reprove and correct us. Now, I don't know anyone that loves to be corrected. I mean, maybe, maybe there's people out there You say, well, the wise person loves to be corrected. Yes, they do, but it's difficult. But think of how absolutely necessary it is. And not only necessary, but one of the most gracious things God could do for us God is so gracious to kindly inform us of the behaviors that offend Him and grieve His heart, that cause us pain, that He classifies as sin. So we want to make sure that we're classifying it as sin too. These behaviors that are ultimately destructive, not just to us, but to others around us. And so He uses His Word to turn the light on in our darkened lives and reveal our transgression and rebellion. We'll talk a lot more about that in weeks to come, and how hard it is often to own that. But the Bible doesn't stop merely at telling us what not to do, as incredibly helpful as that is. The Word of God moves beyond identifying sinful behavior To identifying what's going on inside of us. What's leading to that sinful behavior. The very thoughts and intentions of our hearts. So we could say that the Spirit uses the truth to discern our hearts. This is a powerful passage. Hebrews 4. And in verse 12, the author of Hebrews compares the Word of God to a sharp sword, even a scalpel, that can perform delicate surgeries, metaphorically speaking. His point is that the Word of God can help us discern the thoughts and intentions of our own hearts. Do I have this on screen? No. so I'm going to turn there. This is very important that we see this. He says in verse 12, we're just going to parachute right in. Chapter 4. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and here's the phrase, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's the Word of God doing that. And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. So as we read the Word of God, The Word of God reads us better than we read ourselves. And it's crucial that the Word of God helps us understand what's going on on the inside. Because that's what produces everything else. Jesus says over in Mark 7 that our hearts are what produce all the evil things we do. Mark chapter 7 verses 20 to 23. Our hearts are the source of all of our evil actions. He's in a debate with the religious leaders about what defiles someone. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him in verse 20 of Mark 7. Now listen to this language. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, Slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from where? Within, he says. And they defile a person. So according to Jesus, any sexual sin, any jealousy, any kind of stealing, really any and every sin, that's kind of the point of the whole list, right? It all stems from the heart. But that raises another question What is the heart and how does it produce evil actions? Well, it's helpful to know that in the Bible, the heart is much more than just your emotions. Much more. It's like the very center of you, it's where you think, it's where you make decisions. So where you have desires. And if if you're careful and you're thinking about that Hebrews text, you you would hear there that he called it discerning the thoughts and intentions of the what? Of the heart. So that means your heart can think. Not just feel things. That's because in the Bible, the heart represents the very core of who you are. And our hearts are not always pretty. In fact, they are often hijacked. Before we were Christians, they were only hijacked. But now, even as believers, they're often hijacked by what the Bible describes as the old self. The old self. Now, if you're looking here on the screen, that's... We get a lot of insight from the, about the old self in a very, very, very short statement by Paul in Ephesians 4.22. We're going to come back to this statement. But again, first quote, our old self is our old nature that was corrupted in Adam, and he's still lingering around, kind of out back, cigarette in his mouth. You know, he's, just, he's there, Right? We don't identify with him anymore, or her. We don't identify with this old self, even though he's still lurking around, because he's part of the old life. He's part of the old clay, and that old clay died with Christ. But he's still here. He's still hanging around, and he is deceived. We learned that. In Ephesians 4.22. He's deceived. And because he is deceived, he wants sinful things. Like we saw with Eve. we got like little mini Eves running around. In our hearts. Okay? We're deceived. Our old selves. My old self wants, it craves sinful things. And he's still here. So that means... My old heart is still pumping, it's still prone to deception, and it still craves evil. Even though I'm a new creature in Christ. And that means that I've got to learn to put off, that's what Paul says, put off this old man. Not rehabilitate him, but put him off. Like, discard him. And guess what the scriptures do according to this verse back in Hebrews? Hebrews 4:12. The scriptures help me discern those lies. The lies that I would otherwise be unable to see. The thoughts and intentions, the motives of my heart, the Bible shows me that. Helps me discern what my true motives are. It pierces me with a sword with clarity shedding light on the deceptions of my inner man. And that's unnerving. It's unnerving to be reading a book that knows you better than you do. But it's also quite relieving and joyful. We don't have to turn to anything else to tell us what's going on on the inside of us. To put it in today's terms, the Bible is our infallible psychology. It's our trustworthy handbook to what is going on inside of us and to why we do what it is we do. The author of Hebrews says right here that it will discern the very thoughts and intentions of our hearts, and that leads to everything else. But the Bible doesn't just bag and tag us, all right? It doesn't just inform us of our plight, our wrong motives, our deceived ways of thinking, and then kind of bring down the hammer. It certainly does these things, but it does much, much more. This is only the beginning, okay? It provides solutions. It promises mercy and provides the map out. It provides real and lasting solutions for us. And as we would expect, that solution starts with our minds. Our minds. With our hearts, to use the Bible's other language. This is kind of synonymous phrases. With replacing those lies that I have believed in my inner man with the truth. The Bible calls this the renewal of the mind. So, the Lord also uses His Word to renew our minds. There's lots of there's several texts beyond these that I could have put in here, but the two clearest ones are Ephesians 4.23 and Romans 12.1 and 2. And the point here, the point that I'm trying to draw out with this renewal of our minds with truth is that the Spirit uses His Word to help us pinpoint the lies for us in particular, like our specific lies that we're believing. And then, not only just to pinpoint those, but to obliterate them with His truth. Paul talks about it as destroying strongholds. I Meaning those strongholds that kind of have, have, have held sway over our lives, the truth obliterates those strongholds. And he calls this process the renewal of our minds. So, when we're in sin, we see these things and, and, and we're starting to see the lies. We're tempted to despair because we think there's no hope for me. It's a lie from the old man. The Spirit uses His Word to remind us of God's promises of mercy and the constancy of His love. When we're tempted to think, God, ah, this never change. It's a lie from your old man. He's just working you right now. We're tempted to believe that. He uses His Word with piercing clarity to remind us of the power of God available and promised to us in the Holy Spirit. We're tempted to doubt His love because we've sinned again. We're reminded of the value of honest confession and the promise that our righteousness is found exclusively in Christ and not ourselves. I mean, I could go on and on and on and on. And even in those very sin patterns, The Spirit takes His Word and helps us see what has led to those sin patterns. What kind of deceived thinking is in there. And He helps us trace these things back, these patterns of sin, back to how we were deceived to renew our minds at that level. So the man struggling with outbursts of anger. It's a sin pattern. The Spirit helps him see that he's actually Anxious about his work responsibilities. He's believing lies about what he has to carry at work. How heavy the burdens are. How he feels abandoned by the Lord. So he needs to work at renewing his mind. The Spirit's going to help him renew his mind. In the particular promises that the Lord will take care of him and provide for him. Because he was once deceived to think that everything rested on him. And that God wasn't with him to take care of him and provide for him. And so he was angry. Or the woman that's struggling with social anxiety. She's led to see that she's actually controlled by others' opinions and fears of her rejection. She's believed a lie that rejection by her peers is something terrible and to be avoided at all costs. But now the Spirit is showing her through the Scripture that this is actually just the fear of man. That there are solutions for that. And he's helping her renew her mind in the fear of God. So, first coat. Okay, there's a lot more there. He's helping us renew our minds. That's how he's using the truth to grow us. And he's teaching us Obedience. This renewed thinking is to lead to new patterns of trusting the truth, trusting Jesus' words, and stepping out in faith in obedience. Hebrews five fourteen. It's a sweet, sweet text. Hebrews 5.14, he says, But solid food is for the mature, that means deeper doctrinal teaching. Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Now, what I want to draw out here is this language of constant practice. That they're training their powers of discernment. They're training to discern between what's good and what's evil. How do they know that? Because the Bible says. And even in their own lives, they're trained to discern between good and evil. And they constantly practice choosing the good. And that's how they change, that's how they become mature, is by that constant practice. As the Spirit begins to uproot the lies and replace them with truth, then he helps us see what it would look like in daily life if we actually, get this, believed it. If we actually lived by the truth that we're reading instead of by the lie that we used to believe that led to all those corrupting behaviors. So this constant practice, here's the idea. Sometimes we think, That if I can just renew my mind enough, then my obedience will be easy. It's another lie of the old man. He just gets in there everywhere, doesn't he? Obedience is not easy. It's very difficult. But the difficulty of saying yes to Christ and no to sin by faith is the constant practice that Hebrews talks about that leads to new patterns of living. So the Spirit is very invested to to teaching us to obey the truth by faith. We are going to get into that, okay, and what that looks like and how to navigate some of these things that we often feel and think. But my point here is to show you that we're often waiting around on our desires. We're often waiting around to say, okay, I don't feel like obedience today, so I'm not going to do it. But Hebrews is telling us, don't wait around on the desires. You, you believe what's true and you act on those truths. You constantly practice and that is the way you grow your discernment and that is the way that Christ is formed in you. So we're going get, to get to all of that later. Right now, I just want to give you kind of the high altitude view of some of these ways that the Lord uses to grow us, His truth to grow us. And the reality is finish up with this, that the truth... Scriptures, that's reality. It's more real than what you think. It's more real than what you, you feel. It's more real than your own perceptions, than your own vision of the good life. It is, you have, you're, you, you in yourself, you're believing an illusion. If you're following your own heart, you're following the old man. It seems right, the Proverbs would say, but in the end it leads to death. It is half-baked. It is misinformed. And it will lead to destruction. But this means then that the Christian life is a life of faith. If you want to sum it up, it's a life of learning to believe God above yourself. When you use Proverbs language, of trusting the Lord with all your heart, not leaning on your own understanding. It's a life of living by faith, not by your feelings. Not by what you perceive or feel or want. That's what Paul says, The life I now live, Galatians 2:20. It's a life of faith. faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So crash course, means of maturity, the truth. God is using His truth to change us. He's tethered his truth to his spirit. His truth is completely sufficient. And in all these ways that we looked at and even more that we could, we could spell out that he uses his truth to grow us. Next time we're going to look at the place God has designed to promote this truth and that's the church. We're experiencing that right now. You're here, you're gathered, you're being taught but we're going to look at all the ways that the Lord has designed his church as the pillar and support of the truth uh, for your growth. So come back next time, we'll look at that. Let's pray.